today's teaching text comes from Philippians 3, 12 um, through 21. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have had us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their, sh and their, glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. I gave you a nice short one, Mary Grace. Y'all can be seated. You know, when we read an epistle, we're reading somebody else's mail. Paul sat down, wrote a letter to this church in Philippi, and here we are 2,000 years later reflecting on it because it reflects the essence of the earliest conversations of those who are following Jesus. And so we dissect it verse by verse and word by word, gleaning all we can about the early church, the primitive Christians. What did they believe? What did they understand? What was the gospel as it had been revealed to them? Last week we read a really great text. I hope that you were here, or if you were not, I hope that you'll go back and listen to it. It is a really great, iconic text, a, a, like a, a world-changing passage of Scripture. Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes, and the NIV says, through faith in Christ. We talked about how that phrase is imperfectly translated into many of our English Bibles. It's better rendered, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. And do you see the massive difference between the focus on my response to His faithfulness? We talked about, we, we took that song, I Surrender All, which so many of us have walked down the aisle at summer camp and laid our life down before Christ, and we get discouraged when we, you know, go back to junior high only to take our life back up again two weeks later, and we hear this song again and we feel so guilty, okay, this time I really mean it, Lord, I surrender all. And a worship leader named Zach Hicks wrote a parody of the song called Christ Surrendered All talks about the ongoing faithfulness of Jesus Christ. What has been required of us, Jesus has supplied himself. And that means it's a good news kind of message. I will be really candid. For me, in, in, in studying this and talking through some of those ideas with you last week, something new clicked in me in terms of my understanding of the gospel. Do you know sometimes you like perhaps know a word or you see a work of art and you've always seen it from this angle and then you catch a glimpse from another angle and it's like you're seeing it for the first time. I felt like I had a little bit of that last week in just the basics of understanding the gospel. It's built not on my faith, 
but on my faith in the faithfulness of Christ, which is Jesus himself, is carrying all the weight. He expressed his faithfulness not only on the cross and in his resurrection, but even now at the right hand of the Father, he's continuing to express his faithfulness toward us by interceding for us, by pulling for us. And that makes this really, really good news. And it opens up for us this new world of learning to become an apprentice of Jesus outside of an operating system of condemnation where we can learn and we can have bumps and bruises, but we're doing all of it in this safe context where we're just saturated in grace, which isn't to paint a picture of, you know, all rainbows and daisies. Uh, Paul said after saying, you know, this, this, uh, my faith in the faithfulness of Christ, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know his resurrection power, even becoming like him and, and identifying with his suffering. It doesn't mean the absence of difficulty because of the faithfulness of Christ. It means the companionship of Christ in the middle of difficulty. Paul says, I press on, not to a world of ease, but a world of truth and freedom and intimacy with the Lord Jesus. Now, our text today, we're going to look at in two quick sections. There's uh, verses uh, 12 through 17 and then 18 through 21. So just on the heels of what Paul has said about the faithfulness of Christ, I want to press on to know Christ, become like him in his death and, you know, experience the resurrection power. Only immediately then does he shift to the text that Mary Grace just read for us. And he said, now listen, I don't want you to get ahead of yourselves or get the wrong idea. He said, not that I've already obtained this kind of life where the resurrection power of Jesus is completely known in my experience. He says, there's part of it that this is aspiration for me. He says, not that I've already attained all of this, but here's what I do. When you get the opportunity to be with someone who's smarter than you or more experienced than you, more wise than you, and they say, I'm going to give you a peek behind the curtain and tell you a little bit of how I process life, listen. He says, here's what I do. He says, if I forget what's behind and I strain toward what's ahead. Paul has his own story, his own external religious merits, and also things that he's done that he's ashamed of. He says, but here's my secret. In view of this environment of mercy that I live in, predicated on the faithfulness of Jesus, what I do is I just forget what's behind, and I strain toward what's ahead. Some of us need help forgetting what's behind You could probably journal and write a forget list of things that you wish you could forget. Things that have happened to you or things that you've said or that you've done. But it's like shame has a way of following us wherever we go. Some of us need God's grace to forget what's behind. Uh, Paul says this is something he's actively trying to do. But then on the other hand, he says, I'm straining toward what's ahead. Now, I know that you're not going to believe this based on, you know, my absolutely ripped and shredded body, but I'm not a person who tries super hard at the gym. I want the things that I do to work, but I'm not going to try as hard as like the gym people. And I see these gym people who try really hard, like Adam Prey, who like strap on with the weights and the bands, and they're like running super hard and pulling the weight behind them. And I think, man, that is a lot of effort. Why would you do that? You could just walk on the treadmill and enjoy watching the people. But I see the people actively straining 
Now, Dallas Willard said, you know, because a lot of people get wigged out about like works righteousness, anything you do, oh, that's works righteousness. Dallas Willard said, grace is opposed to the concept of earning, but it's not opposed to effort. Paul says, here's the thing that I do. I actively try to forget what's behind and strain toward what's ahead. I'm putting in effort. I'm putting in force of will. I'm really working at this. One thing I do, forgetting and straining to who God's called me to be. And then he says this great thing in verse 15. He says, all of us then who are, say this word with me, mature. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Paul is... is, uh, being like a little bit churchy here, saying, look, this is the way that people in the mature club think about this. And if you're outside of the mature club, well, God's going to deal with how wrong you are. He said, this is, this is the posture of maturity toward thinking through one's own story. We forget what's behind, the, the, the failures, the, the shame, and we strain toward what's ahead. We're operating in an atmosphere of mercy because of the faithfulness of Christ. If you've been around our church at all, you know, I like this word mature. Uh, all of us who are mature should think like this. Uh, the Greek word is teleos. Uh, it, it, telos, the, the root word, it means like the, the end or the purpose for which something was created uh, or its consummation. Teleos is, is being completed. It's having, you've done all the work, you've matured, you've, you've kind of arrived. And he says all of us who are mature think in this kind of way. The word teleos for mature shows up in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.48. Uh, Jesus said, be perfect. Be teleos, complete, as your heavenly Father is teleos, complete, perfected. Uh, Paul uses the same word in Colossians chapter 1. He is the one that we proclaim, teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone fully teleos, fully mature in Christ. I find that vision of everyone in the church fully teleos, fully mature, quite compelling. You think about, I find that often in the church world, we settle for the absolute lowest common denominator of maturity. So desperate just to have anyone interested in the things of God that if a person crosses the starting line, we think, we did it! We're good forever! Paul's Paul's celebrating the, the church crossing the finish line together. Everyone fully teleos, mature in Christ. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, used this word mature teleos in James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be teleos, mature and complete, lacking nothing. We We want to be this way. Do you agree? You'd like to be the most mature version of yourself. It's so difficult. I want to be the most mature version of myself. Why do I feel it's so difficult when I'm around the least mature people? My children bring out the absolute worst in me. I feel it it was a real pain point and shame point early in like preaching ministry. Saturday nights, I always felt like the worst dad and I felt disqualified to preach on Sunday morning. But you and I each want to be the most mature version of ourselves. What does that look like? How does one grow in maturity? What are we even shooting for? 
I want to talk about this vision of maturity or growing up in Christ for the next couple of minutes and offer four points of insight. First, maturity is not something that we have to make up. Maturity assumes a standard of the good. You know, the idea of telos or maturity assumes that there's an end. There's a picture that we're shooting for. There's an end in sight. And, and maturity is not something that we all just have to make up on our own. In fact, if I were to ask you, you could probably think of a couple of examples of places in Scripture, little benchmarks that give us a sense of a person who adopts these characteristics or behaviors. That person is mature or mature in Christ. Uh, one of those might be the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, Paul talked about that in Galatians chapter 5. It's the evidence that God's Spirit is maturing in you. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Say it with me if you know it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We all get a little hazy at the end there. But these are not knowledge-based evidences of God's Spirit. They're temperamentally based evidence of God's Spirit. God has so transformed me that I'm, I'm patient. You know, the flight gets delayed and you don't freak out. You're like, okay. You know, there's a joy, there's a buoyancy to you in your manner of being. This is all evidence that God is growing you, maturing you. I think of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus takes, uh, in parts, the Ten Commandments, which themselves quite rigorous, talking about don't murder, don't kill, don't steal, don't covet, don't break the Sabbath, honor your father and mother, um, you know, uh, don't use the Lord's name in vain. I'm going to get eight out of nine out of ten, I think. Sabbath, well, I'm gonna, I think I already said it, but we'll count that as number nine again. And then don't make for yourself an idol. Jesus takes this into a much more rigorous place. He says, I'm going to tell you, not only don't, shouldn't you... Uh, kill, I'm going to tell you don't get angry. Not only should you not have adultery, you shouldn't lust. Jesus talks about our commitments. He talks about having a rich secret life and not just a good-looking exterior life. Uh, the, the person who has adopted the Sermon on the Mount and their reflexive behavior, learning to love their enemies, that's a person who's growing into teleos, into maturity. Can you think of a person who you might describe as mature, who doesn't have these characteristics? No, they're intrinsic. Perhaps the most simple way of describing a person who's fully mature is someone who completely loves God with their heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and loves their neighbor as themselves. Maturity assumes a certain vision of the good as followers of Jesus. These are the kinds of things that inform how we think about this as a mature person. Second thing we might say is maturity recognizes the origin of the good. Where do those things happen? Where do they come from in the life of a person? Uh, a worship leader named Matt Redman uh, wrote a song called Breathing the Breath that I've always loved. The song says, we have nothing to give that didn't first come from your hands. We have nothing to offer you that you did not provide. Every good and perfect gift comes from your kind and gracious heart, and all we do is give back to you what always has been yours. We're breathing the breath that you gave us to breathe to worship you. Everything in our life is a gift of grace. You know, you'd say, like, actually, I've done a pretty good job on my own, kind of like staying on the straight and narrow, but you didn't choose the family that you were born into. You didn't choose that kid who invited you to Trojans for Christ, you know, when, are you, when you were in the fourth grade, or you didn't, you know, choose to have these moments that shaped you, that, that brought you along in the way of Jesus. All of life is grace. 
Any good thing that's happening in us, like, did we invent it apart from the grace and the mercy of God? Every good thing that's going on in us is a gift of God, maybe that we've cooperated with. Paul said, uh, Philippians 2, he said, for it's God who works in you. God works to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So God's got his own good intentions, things that delight him, and in your life, he's working to enact them. The origin of, an, of any maturity is that God is doing this stuff in us, and our job is just to cooperate with this. Growth and maturity means necessarily then growth in relationship with the one who develops these gifts within us. And Paul says, I want to strain toward this. I want to know Christ. Can you, we've been given so much in the Lord Jesus, so much through the gift of the Holy Spirit that we never take advantage of. Can you imagine being so foolish as to be given a you know, million dollars that's sitting there in your account ready to be used and you just piddle away and never take advantage of those resources? And yet so many of us do that with Christ. He's given us all this stuff. He's given us his spirit, these infinite resources. So we pray, Lord, if it's already here, like, would you just bring to the surface the things that you've done? May I, I recognize that you're the origin of all these good things, so be in me what I cannot be apart from you. Maturity uh, assumes the standard of the good. Maturity recognizes the origin of the good. But third, maturity is inspired by living visions of the good. When we're trying to think, like, this is an abstract conversation right now about what it means to be mature. But when it comes to, like, really informing how we behave, we need to see someone who's lived it. We need to see another human being embody these characteristics so we can get an imagination of what it would be like to do that on our street or in our house, in our neighborhood, in our city. To be mature, we need to see maturity lived out. A great way to begin studying the maturity of, like, like the perfect example of maturity is to go to Jesus and the Gospels and just saturate yourself in the story of Jesus and watch what he does. Ask questions of Jesus like, okay, how was he formed? How was he shaped? How did he spend his time? And you read the Gospels through these lenses of being a student of a human being, a, a person, and you are kind of surprised that Jesus behaves in ways that you might not expect. You know, you're 23, 24 years old, ready to like take on the world and like you want your name to get out there. And then you go to the Gospels and you see that Jesus embraced 30 years of relative obscurity, living in the boonies. Uh, Jesus was, had this magnificent birth, but what happens between 2 and 12 and then between 12 and 30? Jesus is learning what it means to be the member of a family. He's living with his mom and dad. He's got siblings. He's, he, as, he, as he grows into manhood, he's learning a trade from his father. He, he embraces seasons of, of obscurity. So maybe when I'm going through seasons of obscurity where I feel like no one else notices me, I think, well, if it was good enough for Jesus, maybe it's good enough for me and I'm going to be okay. God glorified him at the right time, and he'll glorify me at the right time. You think about, uh, like, being a student of Jesus. How did Jesus steward his time? Well, in his earthly ministry, you pay attention to what he does, especially in the Gospel of Mark. He's almost constantly retreating from people to be in the presence of his Father. And especially at the most high-stress moments, he's withdrawing in order to be with his Father. The most, like, if you were to draw the innermost of a concentric circle, you'd write Father. This is where Jesus spends his time. Who's the next group of people that Jesus spends the most time with? Someone tell me. A little louder now. And a little bit louder now. Okay, well, I can't hear any of you, but it's disciples. 
He spends the majority of his time in his earthly ministry with people who are learners of the kingdom way. And he's just like processing life with them. They have experiences. He does stuff. They watch him. They reflect together. They go do more stuff. They reflect. He says, okay, now you try it this time. He spends the majority of his time. Starts with his father. He spends that time with his disciples. The next he, outer rung, he's got time for individuals. And so he's talking to Jairus about Jairus' daughter. And he's talking to Nicodemus at night. And some of you who are really into The Chosen know I haven't watched it yet. Know, like, uh, I've been talking about how amazing those individual interactions were. Jesus made time for individuals who were seeking, who were curious. And then at the outermost circle of his time, he were the crowds, these large groups of people for whom he was deeply concerned. Man, Jesus spent his time like this, prioritizing his father, fellow learners of the kingdom way, individuals who were seeking. Okay, maybe that gives me a bit of a model for how I ought to structure and spend my time. Maturity is inspired by living visions of the good. What I personally wish had happened was that Jesus was physically present with us and you would never have to hear another sermon from me. You could hear it from the horse's mouth and we could follow him around. But Jesus has designed in the present age for us to be reliant on the Holy Spirit and to lean on one another in Christian community. And there are wonderful living examples of Christian maturity uh, all around us, people who've learned to uh, embody the good. People, that, like if you were able to look through their life, it would be like looking through a window into heaven. I would advise everyone who aspires to be mature in Christ to spend as much time as you can with people who are more mature than you are in every category of life. Spend time with people who are more mature than you. I've been deeply blessed with mature people in my life. Uh, when I was uh, in high school, I had a really great youth pastor who was generous with his time. I had Bible teachers like Joe Mooberry and Jimmy Doyle uh, who were generous with their time, and they would sit with me, and they would ask good questions, and they would let me say stupid stuff and not, like, shame me for it. They spent time with me. In college, I had, you know, people like Dave Jewett, who so many of you know, and in early adulthood, uh, I was lucky enough to have been hired at Asbury, and, and Tom Harrison was so good to me by giving me the gift of time more mature than me, more ahead of me than in Christ, and let me just be around him. We need these kind of relationships in our lives. Now, the mistake that some young people will make is to go to a person and say, will you mentor me? Now, when you ask the question, will you mentor me, it's an honoring and humbling question, but it often means in the mind of someone who would be the mentor to the mentee, uh, like, oh my gosh, they're going to want a program, and this is higher commitment than I can, you know, take on. Instead, what you might ask is, hey, I, can we get together? I'd like to pick your brain about a couple of things. And you get together and you just say, ask them questions like, hey, I really like how you live. How do you do that? <laughs> One of my favorite lunches of all time. I don't know if he's in the room. Young guy in our church. Uh, at the time was not married and he said, hey, my girlfriend does a really good job reading the Bible. And she said someday she wants to be a good wife to somebody, and so she's learning how to be a good woman right now. I don't really know how to read the Bible or pray. Can you teach me how to do that? And so I took out, a, you know, a pen and a piece of paper, as I do, and just, like, drew out some things, and we had a conversation. This is what he was doing. All of us should spend time, a lot of time, with people who are more mature than us that we can learn from. Maybe you just say, hey, look, I come from, a, my, my family background is really challenging and broken. I don't have super great examples of how to be a good dad or a good husband or a good sibling. Can I just be with your family for like some meals on this, like every now and then and just watch you and maybe ask you questions along the way? 
people are going to say yes to that. If your life, if you couldn't readily name three to four, five people who are more mature than you in Christ that you regularly spend in-person time with, you're, you're missing out. And there's a gift for you that you've yet to receive and unwrap. And gosh, our church is so full of these people. Love to be a part of your lives. I think in a similar way, we need to make space for people who are less mature than us. And, and like some of you may be thinking, is anyone less mature than me? I don't know. You'll find them, okay? <laughs> and just share the one thing you got being with the mature person last week. But maturity develops by an imitation of the good. Uh, I already talked about that. Well, that's number four. Maturity develops by imitation of the good. We need to be around these people and then forget about originality. Forget about like being expressive and finding our own individual way to do this. We grow into maturity by copying what mature people do. Paul is not at all afraid of this argument. In Philippians 2.5, he says, uh, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Jesus, the most mature human being that ever lived, copy Jesus. That's a good start. At the end of Philippians chapter 2, he lifts up uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. These are great examples of men who've risked their lives for the kingdom. Be like them. And then here in Philippians 3, he says, like, like, do what I'm doing. Be imitators of those who are the most mature. He says it in a very brash way in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He says, look, follow me as I follow Christ. Part of me wants to step aside before the lightning comes down. But Paul is appreciating we grow by imitation of those who are more mature than we are. So ask this mature person, like, what do you do? And then you go and you try it on and you practice it. To get good at something, you must learn to endure being bad at something for a while. But you imitate them like Jesus did with his disciples. You reflect on what you've done and then you imitate, you keep practicing. Uh, when I was learning how to play guitar in middle school, Dave Matthews' band was like the thing. And uh, so I learned how to play guitar copying the Dave Matthews Band and church music. John Mayer came along in the same time frame, and so there were a bunch of us who were just learning Dave Matthews, John Mayer, and church music. And it was by copying other people that we learned how to play on our own. Miles Davis, the famous jazz musician, said it takes a long time to learn to play like yourself. So give up on originality in the beginning. Be a copycat of those who are truly mature. Imitate them. And this contrasts, unfortunately, with cultural wisdom and how people behave today. So colloquially, we'll hear people say, you do you. Well, unfortunately, you do you is terrible advice. You know why? I hate to break it to you, but you are a mess. <laughs> so you actually need to do somebody else. Let's try that. I love the, the line in Alcoholics Anonymous, like, your best thinking got you here. So maybe you want to try on somebody else's best thinking for a little while. Tim Keller said this. Uh, he said, other people say, be true to yourself. Well, here's the problem. Which version of myself should I listen to and be true to? We all have multiple competing feelings. This is too simplistic of a statement for identity. Maturity develops by uh, imi imitation of the good, so be true to Christ. Be true to imitating godly examples of maturity and see where that gets you instead. Paul says to fix your eyes on the outliers, on people who live differently. Because our culture and our world is just rife with examples of people who live quite poorly. And we tend to live into the stories that we ingest. We tend to, and, and those that we prize the most. 
And we could look at examples of ways that most people live and think like, I don't like how most people are living and where that's getting us as a society. And so he shifts to part two and says there's an alternate way of living that should be a significant point of concern for us. Part two in verse 18, he says, look, I've, I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. He said many, the majority, live as enemies of the cross. In some places in the world, this means quite actively uh, persecuting the people of the cross, the followers of Jesus. They're antithetical to the way of the kingdom. But I think in many cases, this is people who just live with a kind of interior logic that's completely different than how the kingdom of God is meant to operate. You think about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, who being in very nature God did not regard equality with God something to be exploited, but rather made himself nothing. Instead, people live in a self-glorifying kind of way while Jesus was self-emptying. Jesus embraced obscurity in the service of others, and other people refuse obscurity. They want to get their name out there, refuse service. Jesus allowed himself to be shamed so that the many could be dignified, and there are others who live as their default of shaming and degrading other people. How about this line, their God is their stomach? They're driven by their appetites. That's how animals behave. It's, they're consumers, and they consume the, the, what they want the most, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, as Scripture says. There's a line that says their glory is their shame. You and I could probably readily name examples of people who have profited significantly by behaving in some of the most debauched public ways imaginable. Like songs with three-letter acronyms that you can't say around any of your family members. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Shame on you for knowing that. (laughs) But there are people who are literally profiting off of their shame, off of behaving in ways that are utterly detestable. Emily and I were watching the Olympics the other night, and, you know, what these, what these young women and men are doing is amazing. I mean, spectacular. And we were remembering the Olympics in Atlanta in 96. You know, for me, I'm you know, kind of like beginning to come of age. I really remember that one, and Shannon Miller, and Dominique Dawes, and Dominique Mociano, all these, these amazing gymnasts. And you think about some of the things that they were doing then, looks like child's play compared to what some of the Olympians are doing now. And in a similar way, some of the things that were racy, or perceived as being racy when I was in middle school and high school, are like nothing compared to where things are right now. It's like, like we should all be blushing. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly or carnal things, and their destiny is destruction. And then Paul has that word, but our citizenship is in heaven. He says in Romans, be excellent at what's good, be innocent of evil. This kind of way of living is beyond our dignity. So instead, don't look at the many, but look for the few. Those who are teleos, those who are mature, 
those who've grown mature through suffering in a James 1 kind of sense, those who've grown mature by relying on the Holy Spirit to transform them and embodying the fruits of the Spirit, those who've grown mature by learning to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute you and taking seriously the commands of Jesus. So pay attention to those who live as we do, those who are mature. Maturity is obviously a slow process. If it takes a long time for a wine to come to a place of maturity, and the longer it's aged, evidently the longer, like the, the better it really tastes, the higher the quality. And we want to be the kind of people who, over the course of the many years to come that God gives us, grow into the most mature version of ourselves possible on this side of the great resurrection of the dead to come. Wouldn't it be great if 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 30 years from now, like we realize like, like God did that work in us. Who might we be? What might, what might we become? What kind of generational blessing might that offer to the people who follow us? Lots of you have heard, uh, I love to talk about this monument in South Dakota, not too far from Mount Rushmore, called Crazy Horse uh, National Monument, National Memorial. Some of you I've never heard of it. It's, it's just spectacular. In 1919, Chief Henry Standing Bear was at the World's Fair, and he met this Polish sculptor named Koljak Zolkowski, who uh, would later work on Mount Rushmore. And he says, we want in the, the Black Hills of South Dakota to create a monument of one of our warriors, Crazy Horse, because we want our people to know that we too have heroes. We've got our own heroes. And Chief Henry Standing Bear had this inspiring, magnificent vision of taking this mountain and carving it one day into Crazy Horse, mounted on his horse, pointing into the distance. You know, Rushmore takes up this part of the mountain. They want to take up this part of the mountain. Well, in 1949, uh, Zolkowski and his wife, the two of them move to the foot of this mountain and they build a little shack, and there they have 10 children. And for all of Koljak's lifetime and his wife's lifetime, they worked on the mountain going up. Their children continued this work on. Now the third and the fourth generations of this family are sometimes with heavy machinery. They started the work in 1949, and they've made their way down to the tip of his finger. Got the rest of his arm, his torso, the head of the horse to carve. And going there, not only did they want to create this monument, but at the base of it, an Indian museum, because they wanted to leave this legacy for the generations to come. But in going there several years ago, I was just astounded by the audacity of the vision. They saw a mountain, but they perceived a monument. And I think in a similar way, when each of us look in the mirror, we see ourselves as we are. I, see, I look in the mirror, I thought, I see the bags under my eyes. I, I see my own insecurities and vulnerabilities. Many of us see what we need to forget, the, the shame that's in our past. It might be true, I believe that it is, that as Lord Jesus sees us, we see ourselves, and he sees a saint. man of God, a woman of God, a person who's been called, chosen, elected. 
prepared works for us. He wants to see this vision come to light. He says, embrace the work of maturity. It requires perseverance. It requires obedience. It requires imitation. It's slow work. It's difficult work. It requires saying no to your past and also straining ahead into the future that God wants to give you. But oh, what a shame it would be if 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, we didn't gain all those years of experience, but only one year. You know, the people who've been in church 30 years and 40 years, but they're not 30, 40 years mature. They have one year repeated 30 and 40 times. But we want to grow into maturity, lacking nothing. So Paul says, fix your eyes on those who live as we do. What do I do? I I forget what's behind. I strain toward what's ahead. I just long for the people of our church, and gosh, for myself, for Emily, for our children, that we would grow into the vision that God has for each of us. It may not be a superhero-like Christian, but at the very least, I hope that when I'm a 50-year-old, 60-year-old, 70-year-old man, God willing, I, I hope that I embody the fruits of the Spirit more than I do now. I hope that I can more readily turn my cheek and love my enemy. I hope that I come a little bit closer to smelling like Jesus even to strangers. And this is the work that we're invited to do is God does this work in us to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus and to encourage one another with our lived example, with our lived failures, pushing one another on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I just pray, come Holy Spirit. In these moments where life is kind of paused, about to receive communion, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would call to mind parts of our story that you'd give us the grace and the freedom to forget today. So whether it was a guilty Saturday night that dragged you into a guilty Sunday morning, or you think about things that happened to you that were beyond your control, things that people have said about you, things you've said to others or done to others, maybe just express to the Lord, Lord, I, I need your help to forget this today or to forget this into the future. Some, you may find it quite difficult to forget because you're still facing the consequences of what happened. Lord, help me to forget my shame and remember your power and your grace that was turning even that into something beautiful. Maybe you'd ask the Lord as well, like, Lord, would you give me the desire to seek after you, to strain after you? At best, I've got like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Would you increase the desire to seek after you? Would you give me a vision of yourself? Would you help me and animate me to strain after the kingdom so that others might see my progress? And maybe others here just like in the core of their being, like this is all still just a religious exercise and the gospel has not been preached to your heart. And you need to hear the good news again, the ongoing faithfulness of Jesus. By trusting not in your own faithfulness, but in his, there's the opportunity to be made whole and right because Christ surrendered all. So Lord, join us as we receive Holy Communion today. Pour out your spirit on all of us and do whatever work you want to do. 
Today, if it's just to chip off a little bit of the block or if you want to take the bulldozer to like our cranium and dig out some of that old, like that old soot and dirt and mud, wash us clean, purify us, empower us, help us to have our eyes out for each other. Pray that you would give favor to conversations about mentoring or time together, that you'd help us to have gentleness and humility in correcting and challenging one another. And as we receive communion, would you nourish us in the person of Jesus and fill us with the kind of joy that, that little kid's laughing with. In Jesus' name, amen.